a series called Not Your Treasure to Bury. We're talking about the things that God has given us, that he has given us as gifts to us, as a treasure to us, things that he has given us, whether it be our time, our talents, our resources, our treasure, our whatever it might be, the community of faith that we call home. What is it that God has given us that God is calling us to use for his glory. And so this week, we're gonna, we're gonna talk about your relationship to Christ. And so here's a main idea for you if you're a note taker. And if you have our app, all these are in the place where it says notes. The relationship a Christian has to Jesus is a treasure worth more than anything else. And, and I mean anything else, right? That priceless relationship is often buried and hidden. And what I mean by that today is not used as God would have you to use it, okay? Fair? That relationship is defined as living fully connected to Jesus, causing growth in us. Our relationship to Christ is priceless. It is the greatest treasure that God has given us, that our relationship in Christ, nothing is greater than that. Not the air we breathe, not the money we bring in, not the relationships, not the family, the genetic or biological family that we have, nothing. Nothing is greater than our relationship to Christ. And that relationship, as defined by Jesus, is for us to live out for the glory of God. That relationship, defined as living fully connected to Jesus, causes or causing growth in us. So we're going to be in John 15 today. I'm going to start in verse 1. It says this, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. So you can see a parallel. We'll talk about Isaiah 5 in just a minute. If you've been around for any amount of time, you know that we spent most of last year in Isaiah. We taught all the way up through Isaiah 51. We will pick up in Isaiah again in two weeks, uh, two more weeks. Two more weeks of this series, and then we will pick up in Isaiah, so three weeks. Uh, and we will go through some recapping of the first 50 chapters of Isaiah to get us back up to where we are, and then we will finish the book of Isaiah probably by early summer, just coming out of Easter. We will be in full str uh, stride back into that series. And so if Isaiah 5 sounds familiar to you, this, this poem or this song that is sung about a vineyard, about God planting a vineyard called Israel, and that, that God has done everything necessary for Israel to produce grapes, and yet it doesn't. It produces wild grapes. Wild grapes uh, are just bitter and unusable, right? You don't have to know much about grapes to know that bitter and unusable makes sense. And so here Jesus opens up. It's John 15. The setting is this. Jesus is with his disciples. He is speaking in a way that is true to his disciples, but also true for the church throughout history, Right? Some things he says to his disciples like, hey, I want you guys to buddy up two by two and then go into this city, right? That's for them. And then some things he says that are for disciples of Jesus for all time, right? And we would define disciples of Jesus as this, that we are disciples meaning students of our teacher, Jesus, or of our master, Jesus, right? We have this in pretty much every area of life, right? If you're in school, teacher, we don't necessarily say master, but teacher, student, right? If we have, if you're in a vocation where you're learning a vocation, or if you've achieved that level of your vocation and you're training others, right? There's a discipleship, mentorship relationship. You have a sport, you got a coach. If you are a coach, you have a team, right? Martial arts, right? I have, I have a guy who has a black belt who tr I train under. He's the guy that we all train under. He's a leader, right? 
we are disciples. He's the mentor, the mentees, right? Those things are important. There's always somebody that we're learning from. As a pastor with, I don't even know how many years of school I've spent doing this, that does not mean that I've ever arrived to a place where I don't learn anymore. It may come to a place, which would be true for me, where I have multiple teachers. And in this area where this person is really strong, I learn from them. And in this area where somebody else is really strong, in another area, I learn from them. Almost like when you go to school, you have an English teacher and a math teacher, maybe a Bible teacher, and they're good at that area. In other cases, and in the case of Jesus, Jesus is it, right? That's unfair because Jesus is good in every area, right? But in that case, what we're learning from Jesus, we are disciples of Jesus. So when Jesus speaks to his disciples, these truths that are normative or these truths that are true for all time, we need to hear them as if they're true for us today and ask ourselves where we fit in the story. So Jesus is speaking. It's his final hours, final day of life. He is about to be betrayed and then falsely accused. He will be condemned. He will be then beaten and crucified. And it is in those moments leading up, right before he walks into the garden, where he will be betrayed, it's this. It's this moment he's teaching in that space. And I say all that, context matters, but in this case, context shapes this for us. If I knew that I had about 24 hours of life left and I was standing up here, I don't know what message I would be doing, but whatever it was, I would make sure it was the most important thing I could say. You would choose those words. If you were, if you were dying and you had loved ones around you, you would choose those words carefully. You would not talk about the weather, right? And so he's in that moment, in that space, knowing these are the things that need to be said right here, right now, because I'm not going to be with them very much longer. So here he goes, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. I don't know if this is important to you or not, but as we look at being students of the Bible, it's important to understand genre, it's, it's important to understand the moment and the way Jesus is teaching, and this is a metaphor. It is different than a parable, right? A lot of times Jesus will teach in parables. He'll tell a story, right? It's a human story. It's something understandable in human terms, but he's doing so to convey a spiritual meaning. Right? He's, he's trying to convey something they don't understand spiritually by telling them a story in human terms. A metaphor is different. He's just telling an image so that you can understand it. He's just using an image, not telling a full story. And the I am the vine and you are the branches is often seen and treated as if it's a parable, like it's a story. And that has sometimes some implications on it changing how we view some of the things that are said. This is one of them. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. A lot of people get a little worried, and they hear later that there are branches being burned up, and they get a little concerned as Jesus is speaking to his disciples, okay, what if I don't do this, or I do this, or whatever? Am I going to be taken away from Jesus and thrown in a fire and burned up, and images of hell come to mind, or something crazy? It's not what he's saying, right? He's talking about branches that are connected, connected to Christ, Right? Those that are connected will bear fruit. Those that are not, won't, right? 
Disciples of Jesus, by nature of this discussion, will bear fruit. But there's another, probably more important comment that he makes. He says, in every branch that does bear fruit, he, God, prunes that it may bear, may bear more fruit. So the right understanding of this is to understand ourselves as grafted into the, or not grafted, we'll, let's just leave that off, as connected to the vine, right? Grafted has a different implication. So let's just go with connected to the vine, right? That Jesus is the vine, his father is the vine dresser, so the gardener, if you will, the landscaper, whatever term fits for you. And, and, and let me just say this. Agriculture, horticulture, none of this is anything I'm super familiar with, right? I've never grown anything or, on purpose, okay? <laughs> Maybe mold in a refrigerator, but, you know, not, not on purpose, right? And uh, which might be handy in the day of coronavirus. Maybe we should start making our own penicillin. But anyhow, so um, not that that would work, just saying. All right. You don't have to understand this. You don't have to be deeply steeped in how to grow and maintain and prune things. It just makes sense. It's a metaphor. It's just an image we all know. There's an idea that Jesus is somewhere in between the garden and the Passover meal. Either one. We can imagine that Jesus is in a place where there's grapevines, be it in a garden that he goes to soon, along the way, or he's sitting around the communion or the Passover table in which he had shared about communion and takes the cup, which is wine, right? So this all resonates in this moment. It's just an image. It doesn't have to have one-for-one one definition on everything. It's not a parable. Even parables, when you play them out too far, lose their meaning. It's just, it's just a metaphor. It's just something you already understand, teaching something that you need to understand. And Jesus knows that if we talk about grapes on a vine, every one of us, whether we've ever grown them or not, have some kind of understanding that we can that we can understand what he's saying, right? So when he says these branches that are thrown away, that are cast away, that are burned up, don't, don't drift too far down that road. What you need to hear is as a disciple of Jesus, you are connected to the vine. And that if you're connected to the vine, you will be pruned, right? That there will be a process by which you are made more healthy, more productive, bear more fruit. That's all he's saying. And to kind of underscore that, Jesus pauses from the metaphor for just a minute right here, verse 3. He says to his disciples, he says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now, clean isn't any kind of pruning thing that we need to understand. He's speaking to them about their sin, right? He's had this conversation with Peter already, if you back up two chapters. And as he goes and he, he washes his disciples' feet, which is really a cultural upside down kind of thing that Jesus does, as the lowest servant would do that, and the rabbi, the highest level person in the room is Jesus, would never do that. And then Jesus goes and assumes this position and they all lose their minds and they can't wrap their head around, why would Jesus be doing this? And he says, unless I do this, you have no part of me. And then Peter says, well then just not my feet, but all of me. And he says, but listen, you're already clean. You're good. You're already in me, right? 
If you're already in Christ, you are already clean. You are already forgiven of your sins, past, present, future, right? It's not like the next sin you commit caught God off guard, right? It's not like God didn't see it coming before you did, right? Or it is, it is that. Whatever I meant, you know what I meant, right? Do what I mean, not what I say. Good thing I don't speak for a living, right? So... If you're in Christ, you're clean. If you're in Christ, you're his. You're not maybe his, you're his. Now, are you in Christ or not in Christ? It's a different conversation. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ. And he speaks to those who are in Christ, and he says, if you're in Christ, you will bear fruit. And when you bear fruit, the Father will prune you that you will bear more fruit. Now, I've never been... I've seen pruning, Rosewood, my grandfather is English, was English, he died, uh, and he was just that Englishman who loved the garden, right? I didn't get that from him, I love him, I never got it, but I would watch him as he would prune back rose bushes. I've tried, I just kill things, so I've stopped, right? But I would see how you cut away things so that more life would be there. Okay, so that's the image. I don't even know much about it, and I totally understand the image. The God will clip away things that don't belong, that are not productive, so that I can be more productive, right? I think we all can get that. This isn't an image that we have to go, you know, take some kind of grad-level course in horticulture or agriculture or land or anything, any culture, to understand. Saying, like, there are only things that will inhibit you growing, you producing, in this case, fruit, right? So the product of Jesus, so the next for a note for you note takers, the vine imagery in John 15 teaches us that while our position in Christ is secure, we are being pruned by God so we bear more fruit. Jesus portrays growth as a sign of healthy relationship, not an option to choose if we want, right? Natural outcome of being in a relationship with Jesus is you will grow. Another natural outcome is you will be pruned. Things will develop that are not life-giving, that are not productive. That which God will clip away, if you will, will prune away. Growth isn't a choice we make. We're like, well, I want to grow in Christ, or I don't want. Natural connectedness to Jesus will cause growth, right? I don't have to want my grass to grow. It does it on its own, right? I water it, it grows. Must be cut. It's the natural product of, it's the natural outcome of being connected to Christ. Verse five, Jesus says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not use the same translation, uh, if you're using our app, uh, or the, the Bibles and the chairs in front of you, we use the English Standard Version. Uh, it's a 10-year-old, probably, translation. So it's got a lot more scholarship to it than something maybe 40 years old. But it's also intended to be a more literal translation. Another popular, common translation in the modern church today is the NIV. Different translational theory, rather than um, being a literal equivalent, meaning trying to find one word to match another word, literal equivalent, it's a dynamic equivalent where they take the phrase and they translate the idea behind the phrase from one language to another. Not right or wrong. 
equivalent. That's why we use the ESV to do this. There's a brand new Bible out, about two years old, called the uh, CSB, Christian Standard Bible, something like that. Uh, CSB, really good. Just, uh, again, another literal equivalent. Dynamic equivalent, when you start thinking thought for thought, right? There starts, there's, there's, let me just say, there, there becomes an inherent bias in what you think it means. Fair? Not meaning people are doing anything wrong, just saying it's true, right? So the NIV uses the word remain. Now, if the word abide is super uncommon, we don't say abide very often, right? There's kind of an archaic usage that, there, you know, many people abide in Cerritos. That means they live in Cerritos. That is the most literal translation of this word living in, right? So abide is a good word for, as the, tra- for the translation. It's the most literal translation. Remain in gives you a different sense. It gives you a sense that you're in, and if you remain in, like there's an option for you to not remain in or remain in, that doesn't convey the same meaning, right? If I say that you are to live in Christ and Christ is to live in you, you hear something different, correct? Make sense? Say remain in him and he remains in you. If he's in you, is there an option where he's not going to remain in you? That's a different theological conversation down a different rabbit trail that Jesus has already clarified. If you're in me, you're clean, right? You're in me. You're not maybe in me. You're in me, right? If you're in Christ, you're secure in Christ. So that's our position to understand this metaphor today. And that we are now to take that and to live in Christ and Christ in us. So abiding in Christ. I'll give it to you this way. You have that note? To abide is literally to live in Christ and Christ in you. It is a reciprocal relationship where Jesus is the source and you are what is produced. Like an apple to an apple tree, a faithful disciple is the natural outcome of Jesus. Right? What happens when you pick an apple off the tree? It's no longer gaining from the source, right? If it, if it, you know, it'll, it'll eventually die, decompose, right? The idea is to remain connected to the tree. Now, I know every metaphor is going to break down at some point, right? You leave an apple on the tree too long, what happens? Right, so every image breaks down somewhere. It's just something we're given to learn. We understand that an apple grows by being connected to the apple tree until it's time, until it's ripe. That's where the parable, or that's where the metaphor breaks down. But the connectedness we can understand, you get your source, your food, your growth, your life from that. So you live in Christ and Christ in you. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So the only way to reconcile this verse with the entire passage is to understand that some branches are not in Christ, okay? So some people are disciples of Jesus, some people are not, right? And, and the ones that are not get gathered up and thrown away. The ones that are get pruned and, and grow. And, and that's the whole point. The dichotomy is this. It isn't about you if you're in Christ having two alternative paths. It's about you in Christ, the natural byproduct of that relationship is health, and health means growth, right? That you will produce fruit is the metaphor. But there are others that will not be, they'll be thrown away. Just like when we rake up whatever's left over after mowing the lawn, it gets thrown away, right? 
it's, it's not making any grander statements about anyone in Christ than it is that the natural relationship is growth. Make sense? Fair enough, right? So what does it mean to have an option of a branch that isn't means that person is not connected to Christ? So we'll just set that aside, if you will. Verse 7, if you abide, again, think live in me, and my words abide or live in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. So there's a lot here that, that kind of goes down. Again, there's these statements that go down different roads that Jesus has been telling his disciples. We're trying to narrow in on one, right? But, the, but consider that if you fully live in Christ and he fully lives in you, then your prayers are deeply impacted, right? Now, I'm guessing all of us at some point pray. I know we pray when we're in church together. I'm hoping we pray on our own, right? When I get up in the mornings, first thing I do, it's one of the things I do is pray and read and do that. About 7, 8 o'clock at night every night, there's that time, I just kind of wind the day down, think through the day, pray, kind of start winding my way towards bed or whatever. That his word living in me and me living in him impacts those prayers is what he's saying. And there's a lot of ways, not just in the answers you want, but even seeking the things that he wants you to seek, right? There's, there's a whole lot. We could just run down that road. There's a lot of things that scripture, especially that Jesus teaches about this. Just I want you to hear that your connectedness to Jesus, your relationship to Jesus impacts your prayer. It impacts what you pray for. It impacts how you hear God. It impacts every, it impacts all of that, Right? Verse 8, but this, by this, excuse me, by this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. I love that line, and so prove to be my disciples, not become my disciples. You just prove that you are, right? By doing this, you glorify God, and you prove that you are my disciples, right? Does an apple tree, does an apple make a tree an apple tree? No, it just proves it is one, Right? It was already an apple tree before the apple grew. But the apple is proof, right? The apple does not go backwards and make it an apple tree. And we're wondering if the next time it blooms or produces fruit, if it's going to be an orange tree or a pear tree or something, right? Like it's already an apple tree. It's just going to create apples, right? The apple is just the proof. That's what he's saying. By this, your connectedness, your obedience, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples, right? So again, for note takers, discipleship is relationship. Being a student and follower of Jesus means you're in relationship with Jesus. This relationship, like that of the vine and fruit, results in growth. If not, it would imply the source, Jesus, is in some way insufficient or unhealthy, right? If an apple tree is not producing apples, there's a problem, right? Something's wrong. Right? Now, it could be anything. It could be a bad apple tree. It could be a diseased tree. It could be no water. It could be a lot of things, a lot of external influences. But as it relates to us being disciples of Jesus, either we're connected to Jesus and we bear fruit, right? Or there's something wrong with the source. And since we can kind of eliminate that part, then the rest of it lets us know, okay, it depends upon our connectedness to Christ, and as we are connected, as Jesus began, God will prune away the things that inhibit growth. Does that make sense? The image is clear. The only outcome of a vine in this setting is to produce grapes, 
right? If it does anything else, there's something wrong. And if we are to be disciples of Jesus, right, then if we're connected to Jesus, it will go well. He is God who became flesh on our behalf, right? There's a lot of things we can do to inhibit growth, but it's on us. It's not on the source. The source is perfect. Christ is perfect. Whatever it is you need to do or whatever it is you need to be or whatever it is you need to become, Christ is sufficient. We can get in the way for sure. That's where pruning comes in. But connected to connectedness, us abiding, living in Christ and Christ in us is a reciprocal thing. When that happens, the natural byproduct is growth, and in this case, in the image, is fruit. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So here's our first if, right? So we've talked about the natural outcome of being connected to Christ is growth. The natural outcome of being connected to a good healthy vine or a good healthy apple tree or whatever is the fruit it should produce. Then we get an if, right? So abide my love, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. We find out where the first place is we can get in the way. It's in our disobedience, right? The challenge in keeping the command is us getting in the way, right? Let me do this again. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So here's the command, abide in my love. Live in my love, right? There's a, a point that we should understand here, right? The way we can get in, in the way of that, right, the, the how is to keep my commandments. The problem is when we don't, right? But it isn't about moralism. It isn't about us managing our behavior. It's about us living in Christ's love, right? There's a difference from trying to work your way out, trying to fix the tree through the fruit, if you will, right? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says, right? That there's something internal, heart, again, metaphorically, the heart, what's deep inside our core comes out, right? There's a disease in the tree you get a diseased fruit, that's the problem, okay? When we know the tree is right, when we know the host is right, when we know that Jesus is correct, then we know that the problem must be us. And in this case, it's our obedience. But the thing is not to try and work backwards and try and fix our behavior and manage our, our faith by our behavior, but rather to be grafted into Christ, to, be, to, be, to abide or live in his love. So living in his love is living in the power of the gospel, right? Living in Christ is living in the grace and the mercy that's been sufficient to change us, right? And Jesus will finish this chapter by talking about giving us the Holy Spirit, right? And so there's this idea that when we live in Christ, we live in his love, we live in his gospel, which is the power that he accomplished on our behalf to fix whatever the problem is, that when we do that, we live in his love, we live in his grace, we live in his mercy, shorthand, we live in the gospel, the outcome is change in us. The outcome 
as we produce fruit. So the, the command is abide or live in my love. The how you do that is keep my commandments, right? The obedience that flows out of love. I, I use this example often. It's the best one I know of. But it's this. When I love my wife more, I'm a better husband. I don't become a better husband by learning new rules, okay? So don't call your wife names. Don't cheat on your wife. Those are good rules, by the way. Don't beat your wife. Really good rule, rule, right? Right? Don't do this, don't do that. Like, come home every night, do a job, do this. Like, I don't, I don't learn more rules. I fall in love with my wife more. And the more I love Lisa, the better husband I become, right? The more I love Jesus, the better follower of Jesus I become. And I learn how to love Jesus better by abiding or living in his love and grace for me. Not by trying to fix things, by creating rules out here. Not that there aren't rules to life. Not that there aren't rules to faith. Not that there aren't right and wrong. But I accomplish them by falling more in love with Jesus and following in the way he commands. Abide in my love. Keep my commandments. Then he says this, just if I have kept the Father's commandments. For those of you who are note take takers, here is this one. So Christus Exemplar. I just, by the way, I missed a lot of years in school. So every once in a while, I've got to throw a Latin term up just to prove I went to school. All right? That is the theological term for the example of Christ. But what it means is that Christ is our perfect example. Our metaphor breaks down. Because at some point, you're supposed to pick the apple or pull the grape off. Right? That never happens with us in Christ. Christ is the perfect example, right? Christus exemplar is that theological perfect example. Disciples of Jesus are called to a specific relationship, one that is marked by obedience. Jesus provides a perfect example as he was perfectly obedient to the Father. We get to see what obedience looks like, sounds like. Just We get to see it through the life of Christ. We get to hear the internal struggles that Jesus goes through as he presses in on the Garden of Gethsemane, the next passage, right? As he presses in and he's like, Father, okay, if there's any other way, let's do it another way rather than me going through the cross. But not my will, but your will be done. Like my obedience is not based on how hard it is or easy it is, God. I'm going to do it no matter what. But man, I'm terrified of the days ahead. Right, Christ cries, and we get to see what it feels like to live in this world, but then see how to do it right. Where everything else breaks down, Christus Exemplar never does. The example, the perfect, complete example of Christ. In him, the Bible says, we get to see full divinity in flesh. As much as we can grasp, we can see. That Jesus models to us what this relationship should look like as he was perfectly submitted to the Father. Even though Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is co-equal, fully equal to God, he humbled himself and became flesh for us. And then lived this submitted relationship so we could see and understand what does it look like to live a life submitted to Christ. Well, it's easy. We follow. It's not easy. It's easy to see. We follow what Christ did. And we follow and we see that ourself comes second and what he wants comes first. And, and admi admittedly, we will all fail that today. 
right? That we all fall short of what God has called us to. That's called sin. That we live under the curse of sin. We live in a broken world, and, and we've contributed to breaking it. But we live under the love of Christ, the grace of the gospel. Verse 11, he says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So there's that reciprocal relationship. Verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Again, modeling. Christ modeled what that love looks like. And we are to model that to others. Greater love, Jesus says, verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is saying, listen, I will lay my life down for you. Not only do I model what it looks like to be obedient to the Father who is calling me to go and lay my life out on a cross, lay my life down in a grave, I will do that. But I also want you, I want to model my love for you. I want to model what you are, how you are to love others. Not others that are just in the room that know this and do this well, but others who abandon you. Others who want no part of you, others who want no part of Christ. Everybody in this room except for one, as Jesus is speaking, one already left the room to betray Jesus, just for the record. Eleven left. Ten will abandon Jesus when he goes to the cross. One will be standing there next to Jesus' mom. So this isn't about loving lovable people. This is about loving unlovable people, people that are hard to love, like us. He says, I've commanded you, love one another as I have loved you. No one loves anybody more than to lay their life down for them, right? As Jesus portrays himself going to the cross on our behalf, that he will die for our sin, that he will be buried to seal a covenant of our forgiveness for sin, that he will raise from the dead to give us new life so that we can accomplish the things that he's calling us to that he will ascend back to heaven and pour out his spirit as he promises at the end of this passage so that we can live the life he's called us to live. The gospel is this. It is putting your trust in that Jesus, the Jesus who lived and died and rose again, surrendering your life to Jesus. It's not some mental ascent. It's physically laying yourself down to Jesus, to follow Jesus, as Lord God's Savior for the rest of your life. That's something that, I, I, that most of us in this room have said, that's what we desire to do. We all fall short of it, but that's our aim. That's our focus. Philippians 2.8 says, In being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What are we to do if we are to imitate Christ? To humble ourselves, and everyone in this room, all the 11, they will give their life for Jesus, literally. Chances of us in America doing that are pretty slim. Chances of us having to die for our faith is pretty low. Having to suffer for our faith might be a little more, but to do the things that a disciple of Jesus is called to do if necessary, most of them will never land on us, God willing. Most of them will never be here in our lifetimes. Verse 14, it says, If you are my friend, you are my friends if you do what I command you. So there's another term denoting friendship, uh, denoting relationship, and another obedience, right? This is not a co-equal friendship. 
This is not a co-equal marriage like my wife and I. This is me, friend of Jesus, submitted to Jesus. He's never wrong because he's submitted to the Father because he is God in the flesh. Verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. As we move from servants to friends, he's talking about a move, a shift in relationship. So I wrote it down for you this way. As our obedience grows, Jesus shares the mission of the kingdom with us and invites us into being a part of what God is accomplishing. God is growing a vineyard in us, right? We'll get back to Isaiah 5 in a minute. The idea is that God has a mission to achieve. As we surrender ourselves to Christ and we grow in Christ, Jesus begins to unfold that mission to us. We have it in his word. It just takes time to get into our hearts and understand, okay, it's not about me anymore. It's about him. It's not about my way and my desires. It's about getting on board with God's desires. And as I live in Christ and Christ lives in me, what we find is that our desires become more like his desires. And as he prunes away the things that get in the way, as painful as that may be, as we live in Christ and he lives in us, we become conformed to the image of Christ. That's called sanctification. That we become more and more like Jesus, never perfectly like Jesus, will always be bound by sin in this flesh until we are with Jesus face to face. But as we conform to his image, our hearts desire what he desires more and more. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. There's another reference to prayer. What I want you to hear is you did not choose me, I chose you. Jesus speaks clearly about who acts first. And he does so that he can remind us, so that he can speak to us and remind us, listen, if you're in Christ, you're secure in Christ. If it's dependent upon you, you can mess it up. If it's dependent upon me, we're all in trouble. If it's dependent upon Christ, we're all secure. Christ reminds us, you didn't, chose, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And I appointed you to do this. That's what he's saying. You did not choose me, verse 16, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. So there's the, here's what you were chosen for, appointed to, that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, live, that your fruit should live, so that whatever I ask you the Father in my name, he would give it to you. Listen to the outcome. Now you are bearing fruit also. Fruit that goes from Christ through you and becomes new living fruit. Does that make sense? It's other people, right? The outcome of being faithful to Jesus is to reproduce into others the very thing that Jesus has put into us. That we should have fruit in our lives, off our branches, if you will. Verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. So the end of the metaphor is here, the beginning of his explanation. He's been kind of interspersing things in there so that we would understand, so that we're kind of tracking with him, like we break it down into little pieces so that we stay on track. But his beginning of the explanation and, and his, his definition of fruit is this. These things I command you so you will love one another. Right? This is about you growing other fruit. So if you're a note taker, let's 
say it this way. Jesus paints a picture of a chain relationship from the Father to Jesus, from Jesus to you, and from you to others. A true relationship with Jesus will bear fruit that lives, meaning others will know Jesus because of you. That God became flesh so that we could see him. Jesus came so that we could see God. So that in Christ, we could begin to look like Jesus so others could see God. Not that we will ever be Christus exemplar. We will never be Jeff exemplar, right? We will never be the perfect example. We will be broken, flawed, human examples of people being transformed into the image of Christ over time. The reason people call Christians hypocrites so often is because we act like we're perfect when we should know better and just admit that we're broken people trying to follow a perfect Christ. Verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember that the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also, right? I chose you. They're going to hate you. They persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. In other words, not going to be easy, right? You will be antithetical to the world. You will be counterculture. Verse 21, but all these things they, and I want you to hear this, they and them, but all these things they will do on account of, to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken it to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Who is the they and the them in this passage? Who is the they and the them in this passage? It's a particular group. The Jews. Israel. If I, had not, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. This is about Israel. This is about the Jewish nation who has not produced fruit. The very prophetic word of Isaiah, of God saying, I planted a vineyard, and I did everything necessary that you could grow. And I desired that you would be obedient, but you have not. And all you have done is produce wild grapes, right? Christians gone wild, right? You guys went there. I didn't. It said wild, right? Good look. Move on. So, all right. Jesus said, but I am the true vine. Israel was never the vine. Israel was to bring us to Jesus. Jesus says, I am the true vine. That's where we began today. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you live in me and I live in you, you will bear much fruit. In fact, you will continue to go on and, and, and produce fruit beyond all of this. Verse 26, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, meaning about Jesus, because you have been with me from the beginning. That part is the part where he speaks to them. And reminds them, you've been with me in the beginning. You will be a witness to that. I wasn't with Jesus in the beginning, but I came to Jesus 20-something years ago, right? My witness is my story about how Jesus changed my life. Your witness is your story. And the proof is that the Spirit has been poured out on all of us, that this is for all of us. That if you are in Christ, you have his Spirit poured out from God, from Christ, into us. Jesus will go on in the next few verses to say, it's better that I go away. 
And I know the disciples had to ask the question, what's better than having you right here? Right here among us, with us, whenever we want to hang out. And Jesus' answer would be me being inside of you forever. That I can live in you and you can live in me. So what do we do with all this? So I want to give you three things as we close this up. First one, Jesus teaches us to stay connected to him as fruit is connected to a vine. Connectedness is a, I think that's a real word, by the way. Connectedness is, a day, is daily prayer and Bible reading, church and small group weekly, and being accountable to people in a local church relationally. There is a reason God calls us to be daily in prayer, daily in his word. Read through the Psalms sometimes and see if you can count how many times David says he spends with God each day. You're hard-pressed to find less than five. Many would make the case of seven to nine. At different hours or watches, he calls. That there is a daily rhythm of staying connected to Christ. There's a reason we do church on Sundays and small groups in the middle of the week, because it takes that to push us forward. And it takes that for us to build relationship. And it requires that to fulfill what Jesus has called us to do, that we are to love one another It's really hard to love people if you don't know people. And you are never to live this life alone. Go back and listen to the message that we talked about. It's in 1 Corinthians 12. Go back and listen to that earlier in this series. There's no way to live this life of faith alone. Next slide. Connected means producing fruit. Being connected to Christ results in growth. We learn in relationship, we live in obedience. I want you to hear that. What we learn in relationship, we live in obedience. Looking like Jesus is the natural outcome of staying connected to Jesus, and it affects every aspect of our life. Too many Christians compartmentalize their life. Well, Sunday's about Jesus, but Monday morning when I'm at the office, it's a whole different, you know, all bets are off, right? But then I'll clean it up again by my Thursday night group. And then Friday night and Saturday, well, those those are for me. And then Sunday, I repent, right? No, Jesus should saturate every aspect of your life. The connectedness produces fruit, and those things that you keep back will be pruned away. Last slide. Connected means reproducing. Good, healthy connection to Jesus not only produces fruit in our lives, but spreads the seed of Christ into others. Healthy relationship to Jesus results in others coming to faith. God planted a vineyard in order to bear fruit. Christ said, I am the true vine, you are the branches. If you live, abide in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Not I hope you do, not you can, you will, if you remain in Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. If we're honest, Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. We weren't smarter than anybody else. We definitely weren't any better. We just had the privilege of responding to your love. I pray that many more would come to know your love, your faith, your gospel, your grace. That they would know the the transformation and the healing that comes through the gospel. I pray that we would be so bearing of fruit. That we would be so evidently transformed by you. That others would see you. I know the people that have known me for 30 or more years have seen such a significant shift that I look nothing like who they knew. And I pray that in you, they don't see a different me, but they see a new you. That they see you lived out through me. 
I pray that in every one of us, that if we are in Christ, that we will bear fruit, that we will be obedient, that we will be loving, that we will care for the lost, and that we will do what it takes to remain in the vine, to abide or live in you daily, weekly, midweeks, Lord, relationally, all that you have given us. You've given us your word. You, the God who spoke and life began, the sun was hung in the sky. You've given us your word. How little we seek it out and how great it is. You desire us to pray, Lord, you, the creator of the universe, want to hear my voice, our voices, every one of our voices. That should move us, Lord. That should impact us. Lord, what we would do for an audience with someone famous is often amazing to me, and yet we miss the audience with you that we always have. I pray that you would cause our hearts to change in that. Help us to bear the fruit that you've called us to, Lord, that others would know you because of us, and that'll only happen as we know you deeper and deeper. Have every one of us right where you want us, Lord, that we would come to you. I pray for those that don't know you yet, Lord, that are sitting here. May they come to know you. May they know what we know. May they know what the people sitting next to them know about you. The love, the welcome, the transformation, the power, the healing, the redemption. May those outside this building know that as well. Use Generations Church, Jesus, for your glory, your church for your glory. May we make you known in the city of Cerritos and Norwalk and La Mirada and Long Beach and Cypress, Los Al, everywhere else, Lord, that we represent. Help us to make you famous, Lord, not ourselves. It's in your name we pray. Amen.